It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we're going to jump out of the realm of music and musicians and some of the things that we've done of late. And we're going to cover one of the other topics of jazz that doesn't always get the spotlight, but we're going to talk about it today. And that happens to be a jazz venue. And there is a deep, rich, marvelous story connected to it. Our guest is Emily Olcott, who is a Brooklyn-based actor, a singer, a comedian, director, and a writer. And besides all those things in her repertoire and on her resume, she was also a server extraordinaire at the Jazz Standard, a beloved New York City world-class venue for the music that we know and love called jazz. Emily, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. And Alan, thank you for that stirring introduction. Wow. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, it's richly deserved because that's who and what you are. Otherwise, you would not have put that on your resume, your website, or maybe in your rich portfolio. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, and in some ways, you know, working at the Jazz Standard for six years is really one of the things I'm most proud of. So, you know, I'm always happy to talk about it. It was one of, it was a really special time in my life. Well, the reason why we're talking about the Jazz Standard today, because unfortunately, it has also become one of those victims of our current pandemic and the jazz standard is now closed, hopefully only temporarily, but that remains to be seen in the meantime. But the reason why we've invited Emily to be a part of one of our episodes is that she did, as she alluded to, work there for six years as a server. And she wrote this extraordinary personalized memory of the jazz standard and her times there with the people and the venue itself and, and what it meant to her in her life uh, over the last six years. And her story is very poignant and very personal. And it, it was just a, a very, very heartwarming, somewhat bittersweet story to read about when I saw it posted recently on social media. So Emily, uh, let's start there and, and uh, maybe later we'll talk a little bit about your other career uh, <laughs> outside of the world of jazz and ask you to tell us uh, about why it is and how this came about that you wrote this very beautiful piece about the jazz standard. Yeah, absolutely. When I heard the Jazz Standard was closing, I was heartbroken because it's a place that, as you just said, and as I have already said, it meant so much to me. And and it's interesting because it meant so much to me on so many different levels. You know, I'm completely divorced of jazz and anything else. It was just the defining job of my 20s, which I think we can all kind of relate to. You know, we all had that job where we kind of cut our teeth and learned the ropes, even if it wasn't the career that we ended up being in. And that was the place that was that for me. That's where I really grew up and had tons of life experiences and met, met so many people and had so many experiences that were so uh, formative. And then there is this whole other layer of the artistic and creative and musical genius that I was lucky enough to get to watch night after night. 
And it's just interesting the way that one place can end up having so much meaning in your life. But honestly, writing the piece, you know, it was just one of those things where I heard the news, I made myself a cup of coffee, and I sat down and two hours later, I had sort of written this piece. And it just came straight from the heart, I think. And I just sent it to some of my old coworkers and some family, I really didn't expect to do much more with it. Honestly, I was like, I just wrote this to commemorate this place that I have so much reverence for. And then some of my friends said, you know, you should post this, you should share it with other people. And the fact that it's resonated with other people has been a total surprise. And it's definitely bittersweet because on the one hand, it's wonderful to have so many shared memories and experiences with such a wide range of people. I mean, back of house, front of house, people that work in the kitchen and in the restaurant world, and then in the jazz world. But on the other hand, it's it's a little bit sad because I wish we didn't have this shared heartbreak. You know what I think the most compelling aspect of this is you put a face on a venue, on a place that is a business, and it's not just another statistic of something having been closed by virtue of this pandemic that we're going through. And oftentimes, that's all we hear about. Well, today, business so-and-so in New York or in Chicago closed. Mm -hmm. It's the venerable, long-loved business that we all knew and love in our neighborhood, and now it's gone. But you took it one step further and you added to it that face, that personalization that I, I think uh, is overlooked. And then more importantly, is just how deep the impacts are of something like a business closing. It just truly does deeply affect a lot of people and a lot of things in life, and especially in the life yes. of this particular venue, but also, as you said, in the lives of everyone else around you, all the people that are connected to the staff at the Jazz Standard. And you, you eloquently put that down in writing. And it, it, it's a wonderful story that we will get into in just a moment. But tell everybody that may not be familiar about the Jazz Standard where this is and, and what it's meant to New York City and to the people that experienced it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, before I even get into the Jazz Standard, I just want to say... I think you're right that so many of these businesses are closing and it is easy to gloss over it um, because there's so much news to take in right now. It's hard to process all of it in a granular way. But, you know, living in New York, I, I always like to walk past businesses and peer in and think to myself, wow, inside every single one of these businesses, there's a family, there's drama, there's human relationships, there's ups, there's downs, there's the squabble of the day, there's the people that are falling in love, like in every single business, this is happening to a certain degree. And how cool would it be to shine a little bit of a light on what, what you know, my personal, my place where all that stuff was happening, not just my place, of course, but our place. So the Jazz Standard was a jazz club on East 27th Street in New York City, uh, 27th and Park. And it was part of uh, the restaurant group, Union Square Hospitality Group, which is owned by the CEO, um, Danny Meyer, who's a pretty famous restaurateur who wrote Setting the Table and all this other uh, hospitality stuff. And so it was an interesting building and an interesting place because 
the top floor or the ground floor really was a barbecue restaurant, Blue Smoke, which I also worked at a, a lot. Um, it, it was the same business, actually connected by a back stairway <laughs> um, mm. where a lot of stuff went down, a lot of tears and a lot of, you know, mid-shift uh, confessionals and things like that. So you had Blue Smoke up top. There was a barbecue restaurant, very busy and a very big part of the barbecue scene. And then uh, a back stairway that led down to the Jazz Standard, which was the jazz club in the basement. And that that jazz club, before it was the Jazz Standard, uh, was owned, I think, actually by Danny's cousin. So it had been kind of in the family for a while, but it wasn't always called the Jazz Standard. Anyway, for I, I think it had been... I forget exactly when Blue Smoke opened, maybe in 2003 or something like that. So, you know, for 15 or so years, 15, 16 years, it was this interesting dual business, Blue Smoke, Jazz Standard, and they were sort of polar opposites. You know, Blue Smoke is this cheery barbecue restaurant and the Jazz Standard is this dark candlelit basement where there's all this jazz happening seven days a week or yeah, seven days a week. So yeah, that was that was sort of what the business was. And I was lucky enough to work there from 2013 to 2019. Prior to your experience at Jazz Standard, you really weren't immersed in the world of jazz. And you started out by being offered a job at the Blue Smoke restaurant. Mm-hmm. And from there, like you had said, everybody on the staff had to rotate between upstairs at the Blue Smoke and downstairs at the Jazz Standard. And uh, was going downstairs not exactly the most desirable on the list uh, among the staff? You know, yeah, it did kind of have that reputation. People, I, I think it really depended on the person because, yeah, for a lot of people, working downstairs was sort of a shocking difference from upstairs. Both businesses were busy, but downstairs you could really get slammed and you had to be willing to kind of move at top speed and you had to be willing to take a ton of orders at one time. And it was this very athletic kind of job. Upstairs really could be too, but downstairs could be tricky because you were also in the dark and you didn't have, you didn't necessarily have as much time to spend with tables to get to know your guests. You kind of had to do more of a, hey, how's it going? What can I get for you? Great. I'll be back with your drink. Here's your drink. (laughs) You know, it was much more of, it, it was just faster. And so it could feel really intense and it could be stressful. And then there were certain servers and and servers assistants, which is basically our word for busser, that were more attracted to that. And I was one of them. Like, I liked the fast pace. I liked that it was kind of intense and that you had to really be in the zone. I liked that kind of challenge for whatever reason. I don't really know why. I should probably, you know, be in therapy to look at that further. But um, (laughs) I always really loved it. And then, yeah, I wasn't immersed in the jazz world, but my parents are classical musicians, actually. So, there was something to me about, and, and you know, I'm a singer, so I I grew up, I knew who the great jazz vocalists were, but you're right, I wasn't immersed in the jazz world at all. I didn't really know anything. But for me, getting to also enter into this whole jazz universe was exciting too. So yeah, I think it kind of depended on the personality, but for whatever reason, get me to that basement. I want to be in the dark. <laughs> I think it's a world that a lot of people don't know, but once you get into it, it's like, oh my gosh. Unlike the frenetic, very busy, somewhat noisy restaurant upstairs, downstairs, the atmosphere is totally different. 
And then on mm -hmm. top of that, the clientele, I think, are a world of difference between the average restaurant patron versus who goes to a jazz club. Totally different. You're very right about that. And it was funny, you know, we would always, <laughs> so Blue Smoke is a barbecue restaurant, meat, you know, brisket, ribs, pork. Um, it was delicious. But it was funny because our jazz clientele were often the kind of people that in New York City are like, I can't believe there's no fish option or like, where are your vegan options? You know, so, I mean, I'm painting in broad strokes here, but it was funny because they really were in some ways polar opposite businesses all happening in one building, um, which is sort of delightful in a way. What happened was it not only introduced you to a whole other world, but it became a significant part of your world because in your writing, you said the jazz standard was my home. It was my life. It gave me a life. Explain that. Oh, where do you even begin? I mean, I was always just on a personal note, like a very ambitious kid. You know, I was very focused on school and very focused on achievement and very focused on, you know, pursuing my dreams. And in college, it was the same way as in high school. You know, I was just very focused on that stuff. And when I moved to New York, I hadn't really lived a lot of life. You know, I hadn't really had some of those formative experiences that um, make you who you are as just a human being beyond your career, beyond what you've achieved or any of that. So, when I arrived at Blue Smoke Jazz Standard, I had no idea that this is what would happen. In my head, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll work a restaurant job and then I'll, you know, move on to some other thing. But I ended up meeting, first of all, incredible friends, incredible people who were also creatively so brilliant and so talented, many really talented jazz musicians in their own right. And it was with some of those collaborators that I embarked on my first creative projects that really came from me. So I wrote a web series and filmed a web series with friends from the Jazz Standard. I wrote a one-woman show and, the, and I wrote the original music with a really talented pianist from the Jazz Standard. So it was, it was meeting these like-minded like creative people and friends. I also fell in love for the first time, you know, with someone, with a coworker at the Jazz Standard. And, you know, it was this beautiful time in my life. I had never really had that life experience. I had my first really significant relationship with a super talented jazz drummer uh, who was also a server that I met at work, you know. So it was all these formative experiences that, didn't just give me work experience, it gave me life experience and taught me things that I didn't know. I made a lot of mistakes. There was a lot of personal chaos and a lot of learning that comes from only really making mistakes, you know, and and not just on a work level, but on an interpersonal level. Like, wow, I, I really, I really hurt that person's feelings. Like, how do I how do I talk to them? Or, or like, I don't know how to speak to, like, I made a, a mistake at work. How do I speak to a manager and like have a level-headed conversation? You know, all of these things that are just a part of growing up and becoming a, a real person <laughs> happened there because I was there for so long and just getting, gaining that self-knowledge. I was lucky that I was there for six years, even though at times it was like, oh, my job, you know, like anybody else. But really, it was through the lens of this place that I also just became a person. <laughs> well, and I, I think that that speaks highly of how this impacted you and what it meant to you when this closed, because this is like tearing a part of you 
like ripping your heart out of your body and taking away some of that really important and very emotional part of you. Not only that, but the world of jazz, uh, whether it be the clientele in the club or the the musicians and performers that are there, uh, it's a very special place. It's a small group, but it's it's a group that is, uh, I think from my experiences, probably one of the the best places in the world to be, is to Mm -hmm. be in that community in Mm -hmm. some way, in some facet, even if you're not the performer and on the inside kind of thing, you're at least in it and you're considered a part of the family, uh, especially when you make inroads with some of the either clientele or the performers, mm-hmm. which you did in your case. So yeah. what, what are some of the memories, first of all, of, of, of some of the musicians that played there? You, you touched on a number mm-hmm. of them in the piece that you wrote. For example, you talked about Christian McBride and smoking a cigar and <laughs> chewing the fat with a Nat Cohen, and yet there was this license or liberty taken to smoke that cigar there, which was not permitted, I believe. Definitely not. My manager at the time, I remember so distinctly, because it was the end of the night, you know, it was late, we were counting the money or whatever. My manager turned to me, because we're like, I think Christian's smoking a cigar, and he turns to us and he goes, what am I going to do? Not let Christian McBride smoke a cigar? And we were like, yeah, yeah, that checks out. Um, But yeah, I mean, I have so many good memories. I mean, the Mingus Big Band was my first entree into feeling some real understanding of the rich history of jazz. And I didn't know who Charles Mingus was before I worked at Jazz Standard. It was not a name that I'd heard. And so it was this first time where through waiting on Sue Mingus for so many years, who's a total legend in her own right and has done so much work around preserving Charles Mingus's legacy. She also wrote her own fabulous book, Tonight at Noon. She's a really just wonderful person. You know, I I started to get the sense of history. And because I was also watching it unfold in front of me, sort of this ownership, even if the, the band didn't know who I was or whatever, you know, I felt like I'm a part of this in some small way. You know, maybe I'm just bringing the chicken wings, but it doesn't matter. Like I'm a part of this ongoing history and I can help protect this history in a strange way by talking to my guests and reminding them to keep their voices down and to stay focused on the music and to provide extra context to people when I could. And so it became this thing that was really important to me um, and hearing the same, the canon over the years. Uh, and there's a very, you know, rich Mingus canon of music you start to feel like this is sort of the soundtrack to my life too. You know, these songs and these tunes mean so much to me over time. They take on their own meaning. Um, So that was kind of the first like entry point, I think for me, but I have so many, I mean, I remember one moment that really changed my life and what I thought was possible as a performer was I alluded to this in my piece, but to give it a little more detail. So Dee Dee Bridgewater came to the club and she was playing with this really fabulous band of like younger up and coming people like Theo Croker and like this whole and Casa Oberon, all these other great young musicians. And they called her the Jedi master, which after watching her was so accurate. One of my favorite stories is this. So this one night we, we were finding out the run of show who's coming to the club tonight. The Mater D's like this guest, this regular, this regular. And 
there's a party of 10 that are coming to the club for their bachelor party. Now, jazz club and bachelor party are not necessarily two words you hear connected all the time. <laughs> so naturally, I'm a little bit, you know, uh, I'm... I feel questionable about the situation. I'm, I kind of made the assumption, like as a server, like I'm going to have to keep telling them to be quiet. They're going to want to be more in that bachelor party mindset. And I'm going to have, it's going to be annoying, you know, sort of making all these assumptions about this group wrongfully. So probably, but you know, you're like, what am I, what's going to happen with this party? So this party of 10 shows up this bachelor party. They sit in the front row for DD Bridgewater and, you know, like the Jedi master that she is, she starts her show and they are one of the first groups that she, that she thought she does amazing crowd work. She immediately caught them in the crowd. And for, it was just this moment because for me, I was like, these people are going to be annoying and I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to like protect the bit. Like I'm going to have to manage them or something like that. Didi fearlessly just goes straight for the party. She goes into the crowd. She's like, "Who? what is this party? And they tell her, oh, bachelor party. She's like, who's the bachelor? Like, who's the, who's the groom? She finds him. She did this amazing rendition of Love for Sale where she's like playing with his tie and wrapping it around his neck. And she just has them completely in the palm of her hand. She the people that I thought would be annoying, she has charmed the pants off of. She's charmed the entire room. She's connected with them on this like wonderfully warm, open, generous, hilarious level. And for me, it was like, wow, as a performer and as an artist, if you can go in with that much openness and as a server, if you can go in with that much openness and just feel like no matter what, you're going to just show people an amazing time. I just, it totally changed my perception of my job and what I think, you know, being a performer, what you're capable of. It was so cool. And she's amazing. And I, yeah, I don't know. I have so much, like one of my favorite artists that I didn't mention in the piece was Dr. Lonnie, uh, who's just this amazing, like, hilarious character, incredible musician, organist. We had all these amazing New Year's Eve celebrations where he would be leading this band and just really brought the party. And again, just had this generosity and openness towards all people, just wanted to have fun. And he he had walked to the cane uh, the last time that I that I was there where he was working. And he would like gently tap people with his cane if they were in the way like he's just hilarious and again like I don't know there's just such an openness and a warmth and a generosity that taught me so much even from just you know being in the audience and I think that's part of why I love jazz so much I've gotten to know through the years so many people connected in this world and it, it's been a, a pure pleasure every single way and I, I have no regrets, uh, and I have fond memories, and shared some very wonderful moments with a number of people. Uh, and uh, I'm not a name dropper, but I will tell you that there there have been a lot of the well-known people that I've had the moment to either have a brush with in a brief instance, or spend some time and get to know them. And then you see the other side of them, not just the music performer, 
that you would see in a video or on a stage somewhere, but instead you get to see another part of them. Like one of the stories you told about uh, the generosity of Renee Marie, where she gave a mm. coat to a server, her own coat. <laughs> yeah. You know, she was one of those artists that when we were like, oh, it's Renee Marie week. Yes. You know, like we're so happy. She was just the best. And I mean, as a performer, she's the definition of warmth. I mean, you just want to be wrapped in her voice. And she's told some stories about her own writing process that just I think about all the time. There was this one song that she would sing where that she wrote too, where it was a really difficult personal situation where she didn't know what to do. And she asked her mom for advice and her mom said to her, you already know what you have to do. And I can't tell you the amount of times I have said that mantra to myself over the years, you already know what you have to do. And yeah, the coat thing. Oh my gosh. So she had this beautiful coat she was wearing one day. And my, my coworker, Katie just said to her like, Oh, I love your coat. Just, you know, a nice compliment in passing. Renee Marie literally, I mean, t like sent the coat to the club for Katie and just said, you should have this. I mean, it's just so, <laughs> it's just so generous and, and it's cool. You know, it, it's really different. Some acts that come to the club, you know, they're just there to do their music and their job. We don't necessarily have much interaction. That's totally fine. And some you do end up forming a deeper connection with and you get to know them when they're off stage and at the end of the night when you're sweeping up and putting up chairs and you get to have a little chat. But whether you have that personal connection or not, I think what, what something like the closing of the club really did was it reminded me of how connected we always were, even if sometimes we felt disconnected. Like, well, I'm, you know, I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to get these drink orders and you're on stage like we couldn't be worlds, you know, we're far apart, even though we're in the same room. But with the club closing, it just reminded me that, you know, we were always in the same room and we were always in it together. And I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to have been a part of it, really. Well, and I, I think, again, it shows uh, just how connected everybody is uh, in the world of jazz. And there are a lot of uh, stories to be shared and experiences to be had. And it, it, they're all truly wonderful. And, yeah, there are some people that, uh, that are the artist that comes in. They play. You never talk to them. You never see them. They play their gig, and they go home. Uh, and there's no interaction. But that's the same in any world. But totally. it, it doesn't mean that they're not personable or they're not generous or what have you. They're, they're sometimes, you know, you, like you, uh, you know what it's like on a night where it's like, oh, man, the only thing I could, you don't even know who was on stage. You worked so hard and everything is so crazy that by the time you get out of there, it's like, who played tonight? Totally. Well, it's actually so weird. You mentioned that because one strange phenomenon that I noticed that could happen is if you were super, super busy, like slammed and just running around for the entire set, you really could step away and be like, I did not hear a single note that was played. It, I mean, which I didn't like those nights. You know, I would rather have time to just really soak it in. But you're so right. I mean, it's interesting. Like sometimes as the server, you, you think like, well, they're on stage doing their thing. And we're not, we're somehow not noticing each other or not communicating or not communing or any of that stuff. But it goes the opposite way too. Like these servers are maybe are like so busy running plates around that they don't even realize there's a show happening on stage. But 
I think what's nice about getting able to being able to just write about it a little bit is like, no, we always were kind of listening to you. And we always were like observing and, and cherishing what you brought to the club, even if you didn't know it. And from the musicians that have reached out to me about the piece, what's interesting is they have said the same thing. Like, I always really appreciated that you guys tried not to make I know you had to clear plates, but it means a lot that you tried not to clink them as much as humanly possible. And, and, and so there is also this mutual respect of like, I was doing my job and you were doing yours, but mm-hmm. you know, we both were being considerate of one another and holding that mutual respect. So that's cool too. So tell me about the story uh, of uh, Tim Byrne uh, and his <laughs> experimental group, because you said something uh, very telling, I, I think, because in, in the piece that you wrote, you said, I remember thinking that night, I'm part of something special. What is that? Mm-hmm. So yeah, Tim Byrne's group, um, Snake Oil, came in, and it was fairly early on, I think, for me. Maybe I was just in my first or second year of working at the club. And it wasn't a super, uh, super busy night. There was lots of time to appreciate the music. And it's out there. It's out there. It is. It's, it's not melodic necessarily. It's a lot of noises. And it's different, you know. And so for some people, I think they, they come in with a certain expectation of what jazz is. And, you know, maybe they want to hear my funny Valentine and go home for the night, which that's fine. But some people get offended. You know, some people... <laughs> Are like this is not what I signed up for type thing. So and this happened a lot, you know, people not just for Tim Byrne, but for for a variety of different reasons. People are like, this isn't what I wanted. I want my money back, or I'm leaving, or I want my check. You know, it's people. People are always up to interesting things. So this was a night where people were were offended or stormed out or you know decided to leave or demanded their money back. They weren't expecting an experimental group, hadn't googled it beforehand or whatever. But to me, I realized that night how glad I am that that exists. That, that um, let me try to word this right. Like, I realized that night that I am so glad and so grateful that not only that I work at a club where all sorts of different stuff gets booked, but that I live in a city where art along any kind of crazy spectrum is allowed to exist. And, and whether you like it or whether you don't or whether you think it's the most brilliant thing or whether you disagree with it, I felt so grateful to be a part of something that could inspire such feeling and reaction and conversation and sure, even offense. Like, I think that's all part of music and art. And we need those, those musicians that are doing something that we don't even understand. We need that to be part of the conversation. And, and to me, it was just this night where I realized like, I like music that is doing something different. I like art that is doing something different. And I like being a part of it. What's your most significant takeaway from this experience at Jazz Standard? Oh my gosh. Wow, what a question. I mean, my most significant takeaway I think my most significant takeaway is presence. And what I sort of mean by that is there's, I guess there's sort of a double meaning there. For one thing, what I learned from watching jazz is, and watching musicians do these solos that are never going to be done again. And, and, and the way that musicians on stage communicate with 
each other and with an audience. As a performer, it taught me so much about what it means to really be in the moment. But on another level, beyond what I got to soak in on stage, I think there's this funny feeling that can happen in your 20s when you're working a job sometimes, which is like, when will my real life begin? (laughs) You know, (laughs) like when will, okay, like this is just what I'm doing, but like when will the real thing start? And I think what I learned over the years is like, this is my real life and I want to be in the moment for it. I want to be here for it. I don't want to be wishing I were somewhere else or counting the minutes. I want to be present. And that means being present for myself, the people around me. And I think that is the biggest takeaway I have. Like I'm in it now, you know, I'm in it right now. And during this time, honestly, as well, during this pandemic, like I'm in it now, like this is life. It's happening right now in the moment. So how can I really be here for it? Let me ask, you list yourself on your resume as a singer. So the experience from jazz standard, will that lead to some jazz vocals for you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, in my own bedroom with my keyboard, absolutely. No, I mean, I have such reverence for jazz vocalists and what they do. My training, you know, is definitely more as like a musical theater singer, but I do love so many of the standards and so much of jazz music. Look, if if uh, the opportunity comes up and someone wants me to try my hand <laughs> at singing jazz, it would be my honor. I've learned so much watching like my favorite vocalists there. There are so many just wonderful, wonderful people that I feel really inspired by. <laughs> so we'll see. You know, I like to stay open to anything, Alan. That, as you can tell from my my website, that's like, here are eight things I do. You know, I like to be open to anything that might come my way. <laughs> Where do you go now, Emily? Uh, you've been thrown out of the club, so to speak. <laughs> I know. Aww. What happens next? Well, gosh, I don't know. But... I can tell you what I'm going to keep doing. For one thing, I'm going to try to just stay safe during this time and wear a mask and do what I need to do to make sure that me and people that I love are safe and taken care of. That's the first priority right now, right? Like we all need to take care of ourselves. But on a creative level, I am writing a lot right now, which is great. I'm writing, I'm working on a few different scripts uh, uh, I'm working on a, a pilot and a feature right now. So working on some more scripted stuff for, for the screen. I also have a comedy partner that we do musical comedy together. So we're working on a few projects. Uh, collaboration is something that I just like love doing. So I have a lot of different creative partnerships that are in the mix. And I'm trying to just stay open to what's next. I'm auditioning still for, you know, mostly for commercials. So doing a lot of like (laughs) weird audition tapes in my room where I'm like, and that's why I use this toe fungal gel, (laughs) (laughs) which feels sort of dystopian, but it's also great. (laughs) And I'm, again, I'm open to whatever kind of comes my way. So I don't know is the short answer, but the other short answer is, and we'll see. Well, you are a marvelous writer, and it's quite evident in the piece that you wrote about your reflections of the jazz standard. How would people get to experience that? Uh, Where can people that are listening to this episode today who may have missed that article 
still have access to it and read it? Well, I plan on keeping it up on my Medium page, Media, which is a very, which is a page that I created to post this article. So, you know, um, Medium is a totally free, you know, you can post, publish stories to it. So you can check me out um, on there. You can follow me on social media. All my social media handles are very creative at Emily Olcott. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's just my name. So if you want to keep in touch with me there, hopefully I'll... I'll keep writing, you know, it's just, it really is, it was so surprising and that people, and delightful to me that, that this article resonated with people. And so I hope to keep going and, and maybe keep writing on experiences and beyond. And I appreciate your sharing these stories with us today, Emily. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you about this time and this place that meant so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Emily Olcott, a former server at the now-closed venue, The Jazz Standard, in New York City. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. Please join us next week for a conversation with Grammy-nominated vocalist Tana Alexa. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.